Welcome to the Brain People Podcast, a show where four mental health experts team up to bring you practical tools for overcoming mental health challenges. The Brain People don't replace your doctor or therapist, but we will give you some extra tools to help you on your journey. So join us as we fight mental illness, one episode at a time. Hey there, all you beautiful minds. This is the Brain People Podcast. My name is Jonathan. I'm your host, and I'm here with my co-host today, Amanda. Hello, Amanda. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for asking. So today's episode, we're going to be focusing on the basic uh, basic tenets behind uh, our favorite psychotherapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, the reason why Amanda is co-hosting with us today is because she is our in-house expert on CBT. Can you give us just a brief background of your experience with CBT, Amanda? Oh, I've used it in all different sorts of things with um, substance recovery. I've used it especially with depression and anxiety uh, programs and just in individual therapy into with kids and you name it. So you've been doing this for many years is, is what I'm gathering, right? Many more than I'm alive. <laughs> I've been alive. <laughs> so let's uh, let's jump into just uh, uh, the first question while I have for you is exactly what is CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy? Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is a three component uh, approach to therapy, and it's basically how your thoughts affect your feelings and your behaviors, but also too how your feelings and behaviors affect each other and how they also affect your thoughts as well. So uh, how is CBT different from some other types of psychotherapies that came before it? Um, well, uh, like psychodynamic therapy was mostly focused on looking at your past and that sort of thing. And so they'd spend a lot of time really delving into, oh, your relationship with your mother and your father and all of those dysfunctions that might come up in a therapy session. And CBT more looks at where can we go from here mm. versus spending all that time. There can be some help in going back because that's often where we find some of the beginnings of our thoughts and beliefs, but most of the time is focused on how can I change those thoughts? So psychodynamic therapy, to my understanding, was, was uh, a Freudian, uh, for those of you that have heard of Sigmund mm -hmm. Freud, it was uh, the therapy that he really developed. And can you talk a little bit about the founder of CBT specifically? Yes. So uh, Aaron Beck is the founder of cognitive behavioral therapy, but he didn't originate with the concepts of it. So it actually goes back to the early 1900s where you have behavioral therapists and then separately you have cognitive therapists, but even they weren't the originators of these ideas. You can get these ideas from the Bible. You can get these ideas from Greek philosophy and stuff. So it's pretty much as old as time. It's just the phrase or the term got coined in about the 1960s when Aaron Beck came up with it. So in a sense, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just been more refined as time has gone on. Absolutely right? correct. And we keep refining it. So in that refining process, I assume that the tools that we use or the, the, the psychotherapy of CBT in and of itself has gotten more effective, I would imagine, over time. Um, you know, how, how effective do you think CBT actually is for the things that we use it for? 
Um, well, studies show that it's quite effective with all sorts of things like substance abuse. It's appropriate, especially for anxiety and depression. And if you know something about anxiety and depression, those are actually umbrella terms. And so there's lots of other diagnoses that fall under. So like under anxiety, you would have like PTSD and OCD and, um, you know, other things like that. And then under depression, you'd have like bipolar, a major depressive disorder, and even seasonal affective disorder and that sort of thing. So when we say those, we're actually talking about a lot more than just anxiety and depression. And one thing I think to jump off of that is it's not just for individuals, right? Mm -hmm. We also use it not only in groups, but in, you know, relationship, right? When we talk about cognitive interpersonal therapy is really just an extension of CBT, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And there's probably about at least 20 different types of cognitive behavioral therapy that have come up out of just that too. What are some uh, What are some of those, uh, maybe the more popular ones that you can mm-hmm. just speak on? Uh, yeah, there's actually one called solution-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, or not solution-focused, I'm sorry, uh, trauma-focused. <laughs> we were just talking about solution-focused. Right. That's another type of therapy, not CBT. But solution-focused cognitive Trauma-focused? Trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy is based um, in the idea that, you know, we do have traumas and things like that. And one of the ways that we can come out of those traumas is talking about the trauma, but Mm. having getting sort of a desensitized response to it as we talk about it and work through that. But then one of the most popular ones I would say is probably DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy. And that is something that is typically used for um, it started for borderline personality disorder, but it has been used for the elderly uh, it's also been used for parasuicidal behaviors and stuff. And what we mean by parasuicidal is people who tend to cut or self-mutilate or talk about those things or do risky behaviors, but they're not necessarily intending to die. Sometimes it's more of calling attention to the extreme turmoil and emotions that that person is experiencing. Um, And so it's actually really good for that too. Okay, great. Uh, What are the specific components of CBT? We've talked a little bit about what it is, where it comes Mm -hmm. from, you know, who some of the uh, founders of it and what we use it for, but let's actually get into some of its, uh, its, its tenants or, you know, under, under underlying, uh, you know, ideas. Mm -hmm. What I love about it is it's actually quite simple, but it's so profound at the same time. So typically every single one of my clients is coming to therapy for the same reason, whether it's group therapy or individual therapy, families, couples, whatever, they're coming for the same reason. I'm not feeling the way that I want to feel. And I'm not feeling feelings I want to feel. And I'm not doing behaviors that I should be doing or I'm doing behaviors I shouldn't be doing. What they don't realize, though, is that it's actually the thoughts behind those feelings and the thoughts behind those behaviors that's really leading them to do those things. So usually I start out by telling people, you know, what's the hardest of those three thoughts, feelings or behaviors to work with? It's typically the feelings. When we're feeling something, sometimes you can't convince me of anything else until I'm feeling something different. But we can actually change our behaviors to feel something different. So say, for example, um, I'm feeling a lot of guilt and shame. Well, I might be ignoring that and trying to use 
alcohol, drugs, substances to avoid that feeling. And so what's that going to make me feel more of later? More guilt and stuff. So you see that cycle happening. Well, what if I change the behavior? What if when I felt that guilt, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go talk to the person that I've hurt or harmed. Wouldn't that necessarily change that guilt into something, you know, positive instead? Absolutely. But what keeps me from doing that behavior? Maybe the thought of I'm a horrible human being. And so then I don't want to do the right behaviors, which then it means I'm not going to change the way I feel. But what if I changed that thought? What if I recognized I was mindful of that thought and then I worked on that thought? And typically we do this with a therapist because sometimes it's nice to have somebody outside of our brains helping us figure out what's in it. Shameless plug. <laughs> and so and so that person can help us, one, recognize what those thoughts are. And that's typically what a therapist does is spends a lot of time not just focusing on the content of what the person is saying, but the context, like what might be behind, be behind that, what might be the thoughts and beliefs be behind us saying these things. It's kind of funny, actually. Sometimes my clients will go, how did you know it was in my head? And I go, well, if I know how you're feeling and how you're behaving, usually that's a direct indication of what you might be thinking. And I don't get it perfectly right all the time, but it's so much easier to recognize somebody's thoughts when you look at the behaviors and feelings. So when you go back and you change that belief or that thought now to, hey, you know, I've done something wrong and I'm feeling this guilt, but maybe guilt is actually my friend. Maybe it's like a good friend keeping me off the wrong path. And if I listen to that friend versus pushing it away with the drugs and alcohol and stuff like that, maybe I'd actually feel better. So guilt doesn't have to be my enemy. Maybe it's my friend. And now what are my behaviors going to be? Oh, I want to listen to the guilt. I want to recognize where I can get back on track. And now I don't have to feel so guilty anymore. So, so the, uh, in, in, I guess in a little bit of a summary, uh, <laughs> some of the three, so the three core tenets of the CBT model are thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, I think you said something early on there, um, that a lot of people don't necessarily recognize that their thoughts, right. Are sort of the precursor for their emotional state. Yeah. And I think a lot of people go throughout life. Uh, thinking that it's the things that happen to him, right? That their emotions are simply a product of of reacting to whatever those mm -hmm. events are without recognizing that that intermediate step of having the thoughts there. So this is this is something I br bring up with patients fairly often. And one of the pushbacks or the questions that I get is that a lot of patients have difficulty recognizing the thoughts that they're having associated with mm -hmm. the with the event. Um, you know, in in part, I think it seems like there's an explanation for that. And some of those thoughts are so automatic that we just don't recognize that they're there. But then there's also maybe like a context, as you said, mm -hmm. uh, that's sort of buried in our subconscious that affects our perspective on things. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit into that? Yeah, it is very hard if you haven't spent a lot of time noticing what your thoughts are. And we actually have a term for that. It's called it's called metacognition. And metacognition just means thinking about what you're thinking about. Mm. We don't do that a lot. We don't stop and go, oh, or we do it, but we don't realize we're doing it. Oh, I want to get back together with my boyfriend. Oh, yeah, that's not a good idea because he did this and that and whatever before. That's not appropriate. That's thinking about what you're thinking about. I was first thinking about getting back together with him. Now I'm realizing that's not a good thought because of the consequences that come down the road. So 
hope that answered the question. <laughs> it does. So how can we, if if we don't oh, naturally yeah. have that ability mm-hmm. uh, to be able to recognize what we're thinking, when we're thinking it, how can we build that muscle, so to speak? Yes, that's, that's what I was trying to answer. Um, so I actually have a list, and maybe we can include this in the footnotes or whatever of this podcast, but I have a list of 23 common self-defeating beliefs. So we start from there. And once you become aware of the ones that we typically get tripped up on in our thinking, then what happens is you go, oh, yeah, this one isn't exactly like it, but I think this. Like an example would be, you know, I need everybody to love me in order to feel good about myself. Well, I don't feel like everybody has to love me, but I feel like my mom has to love me in order to feel good about myself. So we start as we tweak those, it starts opening us up to become more mindful of what my thoughts really are. But sometimes we need a springboard. We don't know how to do that until somebody sort of gives us some tangible options in front of us. And then based on that, we can start being more mindful of the other ones there too. Is there any particular exercises or just tips you give for people in practicing that aspect of the mindfulness piece Mm -hmm. so that they're periodically maybe checking in with their brain to see what's going on up there? Yeah, there's three different ones that I that I typically use. One is just journal down the stuff that you're thinking throughout the day. Sometimes we gloss over them because they haven't we didn't sit with them for very long or weren't mindful of them for very long, but just asking somebody to be mindful of what you think throughout the day and you journal those at the end of the day or throughout the day. The second thing that I encourage people to do is notice what they say. You know, if I go throughout the day and I'm constantly apologizing for stuff, well, that might be connected to a thought I have about I'm a bad person or I must be making all these mistakes or I have to take responsibility for all the stuff that other people are experiencing. And just making that connection because I'm literally hearing the words that come out of my mouth when most of us don't even do that either. And then the third thing, too, is to notice our emotions. Emotion, if you have a, maybe we can add this too, but just a list of typical emotions that we experience, but not just the main ones, but the ones that come off of those. You know, anger is one thing, but what about wrath and righteous indignation? Well, when we get to righteous indignation, that means, oh, if I'm aware of that term, that means anger for a righteous cause. Oh, this happened. And now I'm feeling this righteous indignation. Well, maybe it's because of this. And I believe I have to do this based on it. So so that third technique, that, that one's mm-hmm. really interesting to me. Um, but but in giving people almost a description or I, I should say giving them the the words to be able to mm-hmm. describe uh, the emotion, emotional states that they're feeling can in and, in and of itself be very powerful. Absolutely. Because most of us, we have like four feeling words that we use regularly. And sadly, one of those is bored or I don't know. (laughs) So we have to if the more we learn our vocabulary for feeling words, the more we start to connect those to our thoughts, too. So if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, one of the exercises you give people is you'll give them that sheet so that they can, uh, I guess, broaden their vocabulary of mm-hmm. different emotional states. And then as they're going forward in the future, experiencing various emotional states, you have them identify the one that they're feeling in that present mm-hmm. moment. 
And, uh, you know, aside from just, I guess, building more awareness, do you feel like that practice in and of itself has any additional benefit? Anytime we get to know ourselves better is a great thing. And that's what I love about, you know, practicing cognitive behavioral therapy is because you're becoming aware of your behaviors, you're becoming aware of your feelings, and you're becoming aware of your thoughts. I mean, there obviously are other things about us, but those are the main things that keep us doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, I heard an interesting study um, about that whole idea of naming your emotions. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, even that simple process of coming up with a name for that that internal state that we're feeling mm -hmm. in that moment activates a different portion of our brain. And in mm -hmm. doing so, takes us pulls us away from some, some of those really intense emotional centers um, to a more logical center in our brain and can, in that moment, very quickly make us feel a little bit better. Right? Absolutely. Same way when you probably give a diagnosis to somebody, they go, that's what mm -hmm. I'm experiencing. It just is like, oh, now I have something to call it. It's like, I'm not the only person dealing with this. Other people deal with it too. So we've talked about a couple different techniques uh, that you get people to help them identify some of those thoughts or emotional states. Mm -hmm. Where do you go from there? Well, usually I use a worksheet. And I think we're going to talk about that in another Probably. conversation in a future, and future stuff. episode. So, uh -huh. so you give them homework. Is that essentially what I'm hearing? That is one of the huge tenets of cognitive behavioral therapy. There is always homework. But it's not the kind of homework you get graded on, so you don't have to be scared. It's the type of stuff that is really helping you become better at understanding yourself. And so many of us, we're scared to be alone because we're such a mystery to ourselves. And this sort of like opens up that us until we are now, oh, I get me. And then we like to be around ourselves because I totally get me. <laughs> So would you be, would you say that it's safe to say, you know, if you don't do the homework, then your chances of success with CBT are very limited? Absolutely. <laughs> so that's why I'm not always everybody's favorite person when I'm like, okay, you got homework. You're, they're like, I already have real homework and now you're making me do more. And I say, well, this is actually not for me. This is for you. And the more you understand yourself, the better off you'll be. And it, it, is an, it is an exercise of time. I usually like to tell my clients 30 minutes a day just studying yourself and your thoughts and that sort of thing. But the cool thing is, is muscle memory kicks in. And so you don't have to sit down every single day for 30 minutes. You know, I spend 30 minutes in the car and I'm often processing my day doing the cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's such a part of me that I'm not even really aware that I'm doing it anymore. So is that why you don't listen to music or podcasts in the car? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, where I wanted to go after that, actually, you can cut that out. What was, what was I going to say? Um, I had a good question. Oh, so one of the uh, pieces of feedback that I've gotten when I've given mm -hmm. some patients homework is that the homework itself makes them more anxious or more mm -hmm. depressed. What do you typically say to that? Um, well, I don't say anything necessarily right then. Usually what I say is like, well, let's do some of it together then. And then when you feel really comfortable, then you can take just what we did and duplicate that at home on a different thought or a different behavior or something like that. So that I don't I don't ever I don't ever want my clients to feel like they can't do something because there's always a little bit of it. And I say, just do what you can. And you don't get this wrong because it's 
what you're thinking, not what I want you to think. And so write down the stuff that you do. And I find that people are actually way better at it than they realize they're going to be. It's probably one of it's probably a little bit of that uh, self-defeating belief of yes, absolutely. Like, oh, I've got to do this a hundred percent, or I shouldn't do it at all. Right. What kind of therapy do you do? That way, you're going to get the person's or the therapist's or psychologist's first type of therapy. They're always going to do the one that they like the most, and they'll tell you about that. But if you ask, do you do CBT? They might say, oh yeah, I do that, but. It's they only have like a working understanding of it and stuff. So I would I would specifically ask what kind of therapy do you do? And then if they say CBT, then go, oh, what kinds of things do you typically do as a therapist? But if you've already made the decision to meet with that person, um, expect homework, you know, expect somebody who's more directive, too. It's it's a lot like coaching and teaching and stuff. Um, there is listening involved too, but also expect interaction. You know, it's not like psychodynamic where they're sitting back on the, you've seen those cartoons where <laughs> they sit back on the couch and they don't talk and they're not even looking at their client and they're just taking notes and uh-huh, 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 I see, how does that make you feel sort of thing. It's not like that. It's very interactive and you'll get it's a good conversation with your therapist. Yeah, there's a lot of feedback. It's mm-hmm. not just emotional dumping of all your thoughts yeah. in the week, right? Uh-huh. You should be expecting them to help you try to rethink about the things that you mm-hmm. were experiencing, right? Yeah. And so, so if you're not getting homework, then maybe you're not doing full CBT. Is that is that what I'm hearing? I yes, I would say that. It doesn't mean you have to get it every week, but that's typically how it works. I don't give my clients homework every single week per se, like a sheet or something like that. But usually there's reading involved and and other types of things to notice this or let's try working on this behavior and that sort of thing. That would be typical CBT. There's always something to do. And the great part about that is you're getting the most out of your therapy. It's not just I'm here and wait another week until I come back. It's oh, I'm actually processing what I learned in that hour. And by the next time I come back, there should be some more progress. So uh, to summarize some of the discussion that we've had today on CBT, uh, from what I got from it, uh, it's a very effective, uh, very highly researched therapy um, for a variety of different mental health conditions, including things like anxiety and depression and Mm -hmm. relationships and so on and so forth. And it's really about... Uh, recognizing what our thoughts are that are associated with those negative emotions and then what behaviors also influence those mm-hmm. things and learning uh, and having a dialogue with the therapist and learning what are those destructive thoughts and behaviors that we can change in order to in order to improve our emotional state. If you would like an outline on today's episode, make sure to check out our show notes. Uh, There will also be links in the show notes to more resources that we have available, not only on our wellness website, but our medical and nutrition as well. That is all for today. And if you only take one thing away from today's show, remember this. If mental illness is a whole person problem, then it must have a whole person solution. I'm Jonathan Edens. And I'm Amanda Anguish. And you've been listening to The The Brain Brain People People Podcast. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, find us on social media, or support us financially, visit thebrainpeoplepodcast.com. 